0: a warm welcome to the afternoon show i'm bill arnold and today we're gonna have guy talk or guys who talk so let me know what your questions are we've got a full 60 minutes with the power panel so send them on over 877-933-2484 again 877-933-2484 i have today jeff Ferdorn and pastor tom parrish gentlemen welcome
1: Good afternoon, Bill. Good to be
2: with you, Bill.
0: As always, nice to be with you. I enjoy hanging out with my friends, getting to talk about the most important thing in life, which is great. So I want to start today uh, by just asking a couple of kind of personal questions, which I know will make you guys nervous, but that's okay, isn't it? Hey, Have you Sure. It depends yeah. what the questions are. <laughs> well, um, when it comes to... Um, Respect. Do you think that's something that's earned or granted? How does how does that work? And have you ever lost respect for somebody?
2: I feel as a Christian, we're called to always start with respect, regardless of who the person is or the circumstances. And in terms of how we we still should treat them as best we can like the Lord. But there is a point too where some people will not work in that situation and Maybe it just then have to walk away. But my goal is always to show respect first, above everything else. Nice, Jeff. Yeah, I think I think we are called to get along with others
1: as much as it is up to us. We should get along with others, uh, even if they don't agree with us. But I. I like the question in this sense that it, the premise was that you can actually lose respect or have respect lost by your actions. And I think that's true. I think you gain mm-hmm. respect when you prove trustworthy, honest, reliable, and so on. And when you're not those kinds of things, you do lose respect in others' eyes.
0: hmm I appreciate yeah. those answers. Do you guys, uh, how do you deal with insecurities in life? And do you, do you live with them for very long? Are you able to let them go, or do they hang around and, and uh, poke you in the ribs?
2: Ooh. I would think in my personal life, uh, insecurities, yeah, they, they, they're not like they used to be. As I've grown in the Lord Jesus Christ, things have changed. Now, how does the Lord Jesus Christ get through to me? I've got a real good friend who's a pastor. That I've worked with. He is only five houses away. I can go down there. He will call me day or night and we can talk. My wife, uh, I'm blessed because after 50 years, she's somebody I totally trust and I can talk to her about anything. And she always points me back to the Lord. And there have been times I have been very upset or concerned about something. And she will say, let's pray together. Let's talk about Mm. this. And she's told me over and over. You know, you're not going to push me away. I'm going to love you no matter what. We'll work through this together. So I'm blessed in that sense. And it's just, but it's been a a difficult journey. It's not been easy. Mm -hmm. How
0: about you, Jeff?
1: I have a little Snoopy stuffed animal that I grab when I'm feeling insecure. No, no. I, you know, I have... If I don't have a life verse per se, uh, at least I yeah. don't say I do, but I, I maybe I do because Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is probably my life verse if I had one. And that says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So my life verse is basically, don't worry, be happy. Pray about it and trust <laughs> God, right? You know, oh, you like know like that, that song, by the way, that Don't Worry, Be Happy song, which I love. Yeah. I love that song. Bobby McFerrin was actually, he's actually a Christian guy. And I, I, nice. I know he was thinking of this verse when he wrote that song. I yeah. love it.
2: I, I like can it, tell you too. one story, Bill, if you want, I want, that with my wife, when we met, she was also a Christian. She went to church. She was Lutheran. I was Lutheran. Okay. Fell in love, got married. Five years into the marriage, one day, I don't know, out of the blue, I said to her, you know, I feel really close to you, and we were talking, and I said, by the way, you know, when I was confirmed in my church when I was 14, the pastor gave everybody a, a scripture verse when he came over and prayed over them, so each one had a different scripture verse. I said, mine was John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Her mouth dropped open, and she said, "I had about thirty-five in my class, and that is the one that was given to me. And we didn't know each other at that time, so wow. that's why I trust her so implicitly."
0: Nice, appreciate that. If you have questions, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I'm asking a couple of. Kind of questions on the personal side today in Guy talk, which is a little unusual. We're going to get to scripture in just a minute, but i want to also want to ask you guys uh, what small things make you angrier than it should
1: uh Tom
2: yeah <laughs> are you, are you, are you saying me <laughs> yeah, go uh, right ahead I, I can i can once I realized that who Jesus really was. And people, because people, it's not only people in the world I expect to make me feel strange, and I don't expect a lot from them. It was people in the church that claimed Jesus, and yet could be rude, could be uh, in your face, could be overbearing. And I never quite understood that, and I had to learn how to be patient with that, because my nature, I'll be honest, is to put somebody in the corner and give them a good tongue lashing. I had to learn to be quiet. Uh, deal with that, and it's not been an easy task, but I have learned over the years, and now as I work with students, that is pastors who are going to be pastors, students that are pastors, I try to teach them the same thing, because I wish I would have understood this process, that people are people, have no illusions about people, Mm -hmm. but love Jesus and accept people for what they are and don't get upset when they're stupid, because I can be very stupid at times, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeff, let me
0: ask you, know, you the, Paul, the same question. What 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 small things make you angrier than it should?
2: I think you know, what what, makes me the most angry. I'm sorry. Were you talking to me or Jeff?
0: I was talking to Jeff, but it sounded like I you apologize. got a great a great addition too. So uh, no,
2: go ahead, John. Paul, Paul was
1: talking. Uh, he says, "Be imitators of me," just as. I am an imitator of Christ. And so I, I like to try to imitate Paul, but you know, Paul never drove. He never had to drive in traffic. And with all these other people on the roads <laughs> mm-hmm. and and you know, I don't you know, small things. I try not to fret the s- small things. I, I, I know that things do make us all upset at times. And traffic is one of them. You know, there's an old comedian, he said, Why does why does it seem that everybody who drives faster than you is a maniac and everybody who drives slower than you is an idiot? <laughs> and it's like you know, traffic is one of those where it's like, oh, man, I can't believe it, another whatever. But, um, yeah, you know, if if eternal life is a pretty big deal, so you try not to fret the small stuff when you have eternal life.
0: Yeah, I agree. And in Proverbs fourteen twenty nine, it says, One who is slow to anger has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered exalts foolishness. And I always think that is... A great reminder for me every day. It is. Yeah. All right. Hence, uh, that is the end of the personal questions. How's that?
2: It's okay. We're having a good time.
0: Okay. Here's a question that has come in. Any advice to young people to protect their virginity from the onslaught of hormones in puberty?
2: I actually began doing this 10 years ago with confirmation students, uh, especially with, I had one class where I had five girls. And I talked to the parents ahead of time, so they knew what was coming, and the parents could attend the class, so it was nothing inappropriate. What I tried to get across to them is I, I went to first, uh, 2 Corinthians five, sixteen through 21, that says that believers are ministers of reconciliation and that they are ambassadors of the gospel. And I said, you've been created in the image of Jesus, and you are his ambassador. Therefore, you need to hold on to your identity and realize that when you go into the world, there will be young men out there others that will tell you how beautiful and wonderful you are, get what they want from you, and then disappear. The point is, your only real allegiance is to Jesus until he brings along that right person that you're going to marry, and that's the Lord's design. But until then, you know, you don't need to give anything away to be loved or to be told you're wonderful because you already are. You're special. You're an ambassador of the gospel. And I had, I had one of these young girls. This was seven years ago. She's now 21, 22 years old. Got an email from her not long ago, and she said, I am still an ambassador of the gospel. One of the best things that ever happened to me.
1: Nice. I have uh, three kids, and I have one daughter. And um, two of the three have married uh, young, younger than I think what most kids are marrying today. So I think that's one of the things that that you can do, but with my daughter, I did a promise ring. You know, there's the idea mm-hmm. of covenants in scripture, and these ideas of, of a covenant is a a commitment, a promise between two parties that says, uh, "This is my promise. This is my covenant." We enter into a covenant when we marry. Um, so, having a covenant before that marriage, a covenant with your own body that you will protect it until that time that uh, you you give your child away. A man should leave his father and his mother and cling to his his wife. So, until that time. Um, I know in this culture it's tough, but you know what? It's always been tough, I would argue. Uh, this has always been uh, something that uh, man has had a problem with. So, um, yeah. yeah, so you just teach God's ways and teach them love in their hearts. And, and I do like the idea of, of a formal kind of covenant with your children.
2: Me too. It's great. Mm-hmm. I have All two right. granddaughters, and I've given them both German shepherds and Dobermans that go on dates with them now.
0: <laughs> All right, right before we go to break, Tom, let me ask you another question came in uh, regarding Lutherans, and the question is, why are Lutherans confirmed? Are they then considered saved?
2: Yeah, It depends on which Lutheran church you go to. Okay. Um, what, what Lutherans have generally taught And I'm kind of a renegade Lutheran in many ways. But what they generally taught is that like circumcision, when you're baptized, if you're a child, you enter the covenant. And that all the promises of the Lord belong to you. Confirmation came along way back 400 years ago. And that's when people basically entered adulthood in the culture. You know, 14 years old. Now, we wouldn't think that today, but that's what they did then. And then you were responsible for your own faith and confirmation was then professing publicly your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize the problems with that and the formalities and that people respond to Jesus at different times. So I just keep trying to tell people, you know, you've been created in his image. He has a purpose for you. And you need to respond to Jesus as Lord and Savior, regardless of what point in time you're baptized, confirmed or anything else. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's an ongoing issue.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more guide talk. Let me know what questions you have for the panel. 877 933 2484. Again, 877 933 2484. We'll be right back with Jeff Rodorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and guide talk or guys who talk. <music> Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines, practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening to Faith Radio and, and the afternoon show. I really am quite happy that you're here. And I've got the power panel, Jeff Redorn and Pastor Tom Parrish, as uh, we continue guy Talk. Great questions coming in. Jeff, this is a question kind of targeted at you, because uh, this is a result of something that uh, we discussed uh, last week during our segment on who is this Jesus you talked about resurrected bodies and how our bodies will stay in the grave when we're in heaven and the first thing that came to my mind was Jesus's body was gone from the grave when he was resurrected can you expand on this
1: mm-hmm. yeah very good question the the passage about the resurrection uh, which is, I believe, a passage about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, and I'm going to go over to 1 Corinthians 15, will be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last mm-hmm. trumpet. For the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. So there's actually two groups of people at the resurrection. One are the dead in Christ. Now, where are the dead in Christ? Well, they are in heaven, absent from the body present with the Lord. They receive their glorified bodies in heaven. I don't believe that their physical body is necessary for God to give them their resurrected body. It's a new glorified body that they received. There are, you know, millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years where there's nothing left of their body, right? Nothing left to come out of any grave whatsoever. Uh, Many have died in Lots of different ways where there's virtually nothing left. So if God needed their physical body in some way, uh, there'd be a lot of people who would be in trouble. Now, the other group are those who are alive and remain on that day when the trump sounds. And that says that they will be changed in an instant. So our physical body will be changed to our glorified body in a twinkling of an eye. So what about Jesus's body? Well, he died and three days later his body was changed and came out of the grave so there's kind of the dead in christ those who are alive and remain at the resurrection and how jesus's body because he came out of the grave is different
0: good answer it's
1: a good it's a good
2: explanation thank you jeff
0: yeah all right here's a question in first john 1 9 which is if we confess our sins to god he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and in romans 10 9 it says confess and in Matthew 6:12 it says forgive. Are they the same? And where in the Bible does it say that all our future sins are forgiven regardless or of whether or not we ask? I can't find that verse and think that's of human construct. Tom, I'll let you start.
2: Well, the bottom line is is that once you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have been it's a it's a spiritual thing that he created through the power of the Holy Spirit, and none of us take credit for that. We're saved by grace through faith, as we're told in Ephesians. So from that point on, we live a life of thankfulness. In that thankfulness, we ought to be the quickest ones to confess our sins. We ought to be the quickest ones in the world to recognize where we've fallen short. We should be the quickest ones to forgive others because we are so thankful for what Jesus has already done for us. And I think sometimes when when I grew up in the Lutheran Church, we had confession every Sunday, and it was kind of like, you know, I had one guy say to me, an older man, I hope I die on a Sunday right after church, because then I know I'll (laughs) go to heaven all my sins are confessed. I think I was nine years old, and even I scratched my head and said, that doesn't sound right. No, that's not the way it works. We are forgiven, but we want to continue in that forgiveness. And failure to do that, even after we know the Lord, just makes us ineffective for the kingdom of God. Uh, I think all of us want to be affected, so we confess, we repent, and we forgive.
1: Yeah, I think the um, idea—I'm trying to think of a specific verse that says our future sins are forgiven, and I can't think of one specifically that says that, but if you think about this logically, once you're forgiven and you are saved and you are born again, redeemed, reconciled to God, made a child of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit— if you were to then sin, you would then be in an unforgiven or unsaved state. In other words, you would lose your salvation if now suddenly you, as a righteous you know, follower of Christ, sinned and it would be counted against you. Now you would have to— move from being a righteous person back to being a sinner, an unrighteous, unsaved sinner. And so once again, you would have to uh, ask for forgiveness to be cleansed and, uh, and, and be saved again. And there would be a constant, I would argue, daily... Un, be, being unsaved and then being saved again. So the idea that once you are saved, if you confess your sins—and I believe 1 John 1.9 is a salvation verse—if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And I think implied in that is all sins, past, present, and future.
0: Well said. All right, uh, where in the Bible does it say that baptism— Gives you the promises of God. Please make it clear a person doesn't need to be baptized or confirmed to be saved.
1: It depends on what baptism you're talking about. I would – I sometimes ask my class, do you need to be baptized to be saved? And some will say yes and some will say no, and and then I say, well, it depends on what baptism you're talking about. Are you talking about water baptism or are you talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit? I believe that baptism of the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit. If you look at Acts chapter 11, Peter is preaching to the Gentiles. They received the Holy Spirit just as the Jews had, and he then quotes Jesus that says, you will be baptized of the Holy Spirit. If they received the same Spirit, we did. Uh, so we, we know that the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit. So do you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit to be saved? And the answer is yes, you do need to be baptized. Now, water baptism is simply a symbol of of your spiritual baptism. It's just an outward symbol to identify publicly with Christ. And you do not need to be
2: water baptized to be saved. Mm -hmm. I agree. You don't need to be water baptized to be saved. But from my tradition, we look at it a little bit differently in that baptism, like circumcision, the Old Testament is a covenant established by God where he holds us accountable then as his people. That's the problem with that. How do we then walk in that and live that out? Uh, it's a tricky one, because this is the whole issue of baptism, when it happens, how it happens, under what circumstances, has been the real issue and, and divided a lot of churches. My emphasis, coming from my perspective, is that surrendering to Jesus is the most important thing you never do. If you do that, whatever happens after that, uh, you still have the grace of Jesus covering you. So I don't get all yeah. uptight about that. Now, this week, you know, for Lutherans, it's unusual. We we have a lot of adult baptisms at my church, and we've got two this Sunday. So it's a thrilling time.
1: And that's the pattern, actually, that you do see in Scripture. And so what what... Some traditions have done is tried to tried to instill in their traditions the pattern that you do see in Scripture, and the pattern is is that when you had a believer, a new believer in Christ, uh, who believed and was saved, they typically, very many times of Scripture, were immediately baptized uh, in water, and so it was a pattern. It was a tradition that uh, that the early Church did follow, and like Tom said, in some way, I think it is a form of a covenant where you're saying, "I am now identified identifying with Christ in my death, burial, and resurrection, symboled by this water baptism, and I'm going to follow Him. So, yeah.
2: All right, yeah, Jeff. I going to emphasize over and over, guys: it's Jesus. Get right with Jesus,
1: and yeah, everything else will work out.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. All right, amen. Jeff. You
0: have we have one minute, Jeff, because uh, we have to go to break here. But uh you're back on the hot seat. What about the dead that came out of the grave when Jesus was crucified?
1: Yeah, so these are the called the Matthew 27 saints, and it says that the, the moment that Jesus died, that there were these people that came out of their graves and then went into the city after the resurrection of, of Jesus. So we don't know who these people are, how many— there were how long they've been dead, but clearly they were dead and came out of the grave at the crucifixion. And, and I can imagine they were like Lazarus, and boy, did they probably have a story to tell, right? Now, were, <laughs> yeah. they, were they resurrected to glory – Or were they simply resuscitated, brought back to life like Lazarus was? And I think we can know for sure because they came out of their graves before Jesus rose from the dead. So it was before Jesus was glorified, meaning Jesus wouldn't be the firstborn of all creation, the first to be glorified, if they rose in their glorified body. So I think we can safely conclude it was their physical resurrection, physical resuscitation.
0: Now we'll take a break and we'll be right back with lots more guide talk. Send your questions over 877-933-2484. It's
2: the afternoon show with Bill
0: Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner?
2: Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill
0: I sure like this time of the week when guy talk happens and it's happening right now. So I've got time for your questions. Send them over 877-933-2484. I've got Tom Parrish and Jeff Ferdorn as my panel today. And some great questions are coming in. The latest one that just popped up is, uh, I have a question that could be asked by a non-believer, and I wouldn't know how to answer it. So how would you explain biblical genealogy against Darwin's theory of evolution? Do we know approximately how long ago Adam and Eve appeared on Earth?
1: Well, we do. If you look. At the timeline of the generations that are described in scripture, starting with Adam, we know how old he was when he had his first child, and so on down the line. It comes to about six thousand years ago, so about about four thousand BC. What was would have been Adam's birth date, or his more precisely his creation date. The discussion of evolution is is more complicated, but but let me try to simplify it. If there is not a literal Adam. In a literal garden with a literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a literal command not to eat the tree, and then, of course, Adam did eat the tree and fell, if that didn't actually happen, as evolutionists or some theistic evolutionists say, well, then there's no need for what Scripture calls the second Adam, who is Jesus, who comes to redeem mankind from the sin of the garden— and so I would say without a literal Adam and a literal fall, there's no need for a literal Christ to come to redeem mankind.
2: I would agree. And the other reality is this, is that even in scientific circles, Charles Darwin is now rejected, and uh, they're not talking about him much anymore. They're coming up with other theories, and they're discovering that it what's interesting and I would advise the uh, listener to go to uh, the online to the Creation Museum or Ken Ham with the Ark. he has a ton of scientific information from PhDs talking about how the Bible and talking about Adam and Eve and everything uh, really fits more scientifically than a lot of the theories because if you look at the scientific theories from when I was a kid until now, they change about every two years. You know,
1: the more we have learned about DNA and the inner workings of the cell. Remember when Darwin wrote his uh, Origins of Species in 1859, I believe, he knew nothing of DNA. He knew nothing of the cell. The cell was just a blob. The details, the inner workings of the cell and the complexity of a cell are now astounding. There are many factories going on in every cell of your body that just cannot be explained through evolutionary processes. The other thing we now know about is DNA, and that the information in DNA is required to build any biological system whatsoever, from the smallest, least complex systems to the most complex systems, like an eye or an echolocation system and a dolphin or whatever. That all requires DNA. DNA is basically information. It's code. It's how you build things. It's it's the design parameters to build biological systems. And if it's information, there has to be and intelligence behind that information
2: we know that
0: all right thank yeah, you for honestly, that answer. most of
2: the scientists i've talked to or worked with would agree absolutely with you jeff
0: mm-hmm. yeah all right let's move on uh here's a question that i can resonate with why doesn't the bible tell more detailed information on joseph being jesus's lineage came from him he
2: is very important yeah, there's not a whole lot of information about Joseph in the Bible. No, there isn't. I wish there was. Okay. I wish there was, too. It would be a lot more fun. Here's the problem. Uh, I think it's at the end of First uh, John, or Second the John, where he says, if, if everything in the Gospel of John, if everything was written down about Jesus, it would fill all the libraries of the world or all the, the books. The point of the Gospels is to talk about Jesus, not about Mary and not about Joseph. They're in the story because they're intricate, but we don't get a lot of details, and it's only been in latter years that we discovered James, it tells us in Acts, was the half-brother of Jesus, and Jude, who wrote the epistle of Jude, uh, was a half-brother as well. So we don't have a lot of information about the family, because the focus is on Jesus and his work.
1: Yeah, it actually, in both of the genealogies, it kind of makes it clear that he, he wasn't actually the... The genetic father; uh, he was the husband of Mary in one of the genealogies. and I can't; I'm trying to think of the precise language in the other genealogy. But it's clear that that uh, that he was the adoptive father, if you will. Uh, but still, he, as an adoptive father through the line of David, that's one of the prophecies for the Christ that he would be a descendant of David. And actually, many scholars believe that the both the Matthew genealogy and the Luke genealogy. One one idea is that one is actually through Joseph; the other is through Mary, but both go back to David. So either way, Jesus is, and it's a descendant of David. Just as the prophecy uh, and the promise to David, God's promise to David, uh, is was fulfilled through Jesus. Why don't we have more about Joseph? Boy, that's a a really good question. Um, you know, he protected his son, brought him to Egypt, and then brought him back into uh, Israel when it was all safe. And that's really all we know.
0: Mm-hmm. He was yes. a
1: remarkable They're,
0: man. Yeah. There, there's information that does not exist in Scripture because God does not deem it necessary for us to know, but it, it'll sure be fun in heaven, won't it, to find all this stuff out? Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, you here's know, another and, question. And
1: you, you'll be able to talk to Joseph and ask him what it was like. Think about that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it'll be awesome. I'm going to talk to him before you are, Jeff, just so you know. Okay, all right. Yeah. right. <laughs> I'll, I'll <talk laughs> here's,
1: here's I'm going to talk to Mary first, then. <laughs> all
0: right, here's another question.
1: Here's another question just like
0: it. Uh, I've always wondered how they knew Jesus was uh, praying to his father and was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane if all the apostles were sleeping.
2: Well, you have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the basic bottom line is is that the Lord himself is the author of the Scriptures. You know, if we look at the Bible simply as a human product, then— That's very legitimate, and how could anybody have known that? But you understand it is both a human product and a divine product at the same time, because as Timothy tells us, all Scripture is God-breathed and uh, useful for teaching and righteousness. So the Holy Spirit, I believe, simply revealed that information to give us a greater in-depth understanding of the suffering Jesus went through for you and me. And being in agony,
1: he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And uh, some actually consider it uh, a, a metaphor or simile uh, because it says – in some English versions like great drops of blood. Others believe it's literal. Uh, We know that he was overwhelmed with anguish either way and at the prospect of facing what he was about to face. And so the picture in the garden is a very powerful picture. Um, And uh, regardless of either way, whether it was actually sweats, uh, was actual blood or whether it was like blood or whatever, I think the key to the whole scene is what he then says. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And I think that's basically the heart of our Christian walk to be able to say day after day, not my will, but your will be done.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting remarks. Both of you, thank you for that. Uh, you would think when Jesus came af- out after that time of prayer that there would have been possible evidence of him sweating blood. I mean, that blood's pretty distinctive. Substance, (laughs) and I'd be curious Curious as to find out more. But of course, we'll do that in heaven.
1: Yeah, and the key is what Tom said. If I'm sorry, Tom, if I really kid, the key that Tom said was that the Scripture is inspired. So, I mean, we have to get to the point as Christians that we know and understand that every word from Genesis to Revelation is the inspired word of God. So,
2: yep.
0: All right. Here's another question. Uh, We're back to life after death. So if after death we're with Christ and our bodies are in the grave, does that mean our spirits can exist independently? Or is there an intermediate substance that completes us until resurrection?
1: I, I do believe that, that that's the, the picture. So in Colossians, Paul says that for though I am absent From the body, I am present. Uh, Actually, that's not the verse I was looking for. Absent from the body is the one I was looking for. But this was one where he's telling the (laughs) the the Colossians that he's absent from them in body, but he also says it of his own body that he's absent from the body at home with the Lord. And so we know that it is. We we see in Scripture the description of two distinct bodies: the natural body and the glorified body. I do not see a description of a third intermediate body. And so the soul, when it goes to heaven, can exist without a body. And and that's exactly what what Paul says. So I don't think it needs a body. I don't think it needs a body to exist. Remember, God is a spirit um, and we have spirit beings and they exist in the spirit realm. And so in heaven, spiritually, I actually think, uh, I love C.S. Lewis's quote on this. He says that you don't have a a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And so I think when we are in soul, we will be more real and existent than what we are now in
2: our physical body. Yeah, it's also, soul, which is who we are. And the, that soul goes to be with Jesus regardless. There's also
0: uh, a French philosopher, I can't think of his name, maybe I just can't pronounce it, but he said we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. hmm I agree, that's kind of like the of what,
1: C.S. Lewis quote, too.
0: Uh, yeah, it is a little bit like the C.S. Lewis quote. All right, um, I know you got questions for us. Uh, maybe you've had something come up in a Bible study recently. Maybe you've had some time alone with the Lord in your quiet time, and you came across a verse that was uh, confusing, and you wanted um, some insight. Or maybe you've always wanted to ask your pastor something, and you just didn't quite have the courage to do it well now's the time all you have to do is text the question over and i'll put it on the air of course you can remain anonymous and the number to text is 877-933-2484 again 877-933-2484 is there scriptural or biblical significance that christ lived only to the age of 33
2: well, I know in Jewish society, he would not have been considered, uh, what shall I say, a teacher until he was age 30. Okay. And that's when his ministry began. And I don't know if the 33 is significant or not, but I know he had to, He started at age 30, and then the ministry went on for three years until they got so tired of him, they crucified him. Mm-hmm. So he was very effective in three years. Yeah, I know that because it— talks
1: about his age in scripture, I have found that every little detail in scripture in some way, shape, or form is significant or meaningful uh, to understand something. And uh, I don't know what the significance here is uh, with his age or its discussion of his age, but I'm sure one day, uh, you know, we will know that little tidbit of information as well. So um, I, I wanted to do one thing from the last question, the verse that I was thinking of is Second Corinthians Five eight, where it says we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that was actually the verse I was thinking of in the last question. Mm-hmm.
0: I love this question uh, about a conversation that she had with another friend about uh, the Jesus Revolution movie that's coming out. She was excited about it and was talking to her friend, and her friend asked if she was proselytizing to her. And she didn't appreciate that. So I told her the difference between Buddha, Allah, and that Christ, and that Christ is alive. She scoffed at that, but I told her that there were uh, eyewitnesses after the resurrection, and she was just wanting to uh, find out exactly how many eyewitnesses were there.
2: Well, we know there were at least 500. That's in Scripture. Um I would would think there were even more than that. I think for me, the eyewitness testimony that's the most powerful is that for 2,000 years, this has been the dominant thinking in human history, and we are still pursuing this one called Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, Scripture
1: says that it was an over 500 brethren he appeared to at the same time. So we know it's at least 500, as Tom said. Remember, Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. So I'm sure there was hundreds more that uh, saw, interacted with Jesus after he rose from the grave. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the Jesus yeah. Revolution movie, by the way, when we come back from break? I yeah, saw we it sure last will. night.
0: All oh, right, cool. All right, you're listening to the Guy Talk. Uh, or Guys who talk, send your questions over 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Okay, I hate to break in early, but we got a lot to cover. And that's just the way it is today on Guy Talk. Lots of questions coming in. And I got to get to uh, some of these great questions. So, Jeff, I got to look your direction again. Uh, mm-hmm. Matthew twenty-seven, uh, the resurrection saints who came out of the tomb. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-three says that they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. And um, this, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so the, the, the key here with this verse is, does the after describe their coming out of their tombs, or does the after describe entering into the holy city? And so that, there's the kind of the language debate in the Greek on which one it, it, it is. And I have looked at this, and Greek scholars have said that the after applies to the entering into the holy city. So let me read it in the NASB. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Right? So it's just a, a semantic thing. Does the after apply to the coming out of the tombs or does the after apply to entering into the city? By the way, it's it's really uh, – I, I don't think it's a resurrection to glory either way. Um, mm-hmm. Christ had to be the first fruits. We know that he wasn't resurrected uh, until three days later. So he didn't receive his glorified bodies until uh, at, at the resurrection. Um, so it, it wouldn't make sense that they were resurrected before. But even if it was after, it still doesn't make sense that they would be resurrected to glory because that's resurrection day and that's a future right. day. So I think these people, whoever they are and however many there, there are and however long they were in their graves, uh, I think they were resuscitated like Lazarus.
0: Nice, okay. Can you explain the difference between tithing and first fruits? I'm going to receive a raise at work, and I feel that if I receive that, I will give it back to the Lord as first fruits. Is that correct?
2: I like that idea because tithing was always a legalistic approach to giving, and it's interesting because it's uh Saint Paul seems to assume that Christians will give beyond the tithe because the tithe was the law, but out of their thankfulness and, as you said it, first fruits, they would give even more, mm-hmm. which I think is a great and interesting concept. Yeah, so the,
1: uh, I like to point out that the tithe was a, a requirement in the Old Testament, God said, I want a tenth of all that you produce, uh, whether your flock or your fields or whatever it was. And it was to be given to basically the, the temple, the Levites, the tribe that did not inherit uh, part of the land. Remember, the Levites were the priests and they didn't inherit part of the land and couldn't, they weren't self sufficient. So at the rest of Israel gave a tenth of what they did to God and his work and, and the temple uh, system that was there. The New Testament, I don't believe that Christians today are under the law and under this obligation. So Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians that each one should give what he has decided in his heart, not out of obligation or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we on this side of the cross are to give without a, an obligation, but cheerfully. Uh, but the idea of the first—remember, part of the tie or the the principle of the tithes was: don't just give God your leftovers. Don't give him the 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 bad, sh- you know, sheep, the the worst of the crop. He wants the first fruits. He, he mm-hmm. wants the best. And I think that principle still applies today.
2: Mm-hmm. Actually, well the done. Greek word that we translate uh, "cheerful giver" can be translated "hilarious yeah.
1: giver." I like that. <laughs> it should be fun to give to God's work, right? Oh, of
2: course. Yeah.
0: Amen. We learn that every time we have a fundraiser with people with all the generous people that give to Faith Radio. So, uh I will yep. say that is true, true, true. All right, here's another question, gentlemen. Uh will we I love this one. Um will we know every person in heaven? I'm just I'm going to just throw out a number here. This is the question. Let's say there are 10 billion people in heaven. Will I know all 10 billion? Will I know you who were, everyone is?
1: You, you will, but you, you, you'll forget their names often, right? You'll, you'll, what's his name again? I can't remember his name. No, I don't think so. I actually think we will. I think it will be relatively easy for us. Remember, now we see in part, then we will see fully, as just as we are fully known, Paul says. And I think we're up in heaven. Uh, we won't know them. Remember, we won't be omniscient, When we get to heaven, God alone is omniscient, Uh, but I think we will. And I think we'll have the capability to know and meet and remember everybody up in heaven.
2: I would agree. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information on that, but it seems to fit logically with what Jeff's saying, because we're going to be a family in heaven. And as part of the Lord's family and brothers and sisters, I think we will.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Here's a question uh, about uh, apocryphal books, uh, Maccabees. N- n- why is it not in other Bibles?
2: Well, the Roman Catholic includes that in their traditions of the Bible. Uh, the Protestants basically did not because they came up with the criteria, or what became the the Protestants, and those who then put the New Testament together came up with criteria that it had to be by uh, somebody who was there with Jesus for the New Testament, somebody who um, witnessed what he did, that kind of thing, or a Mm -hmm. disciple of those. We don't know. You know, Maccabees is a history between the Testaments, and I believe that it's a fairly accurate history. Uh, Archaeologists are discovering things all the time. Uh, It just uh, doesn't—it's not talking about Jesus in the Maccabees. uh,
1: I— I think the easiest explanation for me is that who are the keepers of the Old Testament? And that was the Jewish people. They were given the the law. They were given the prophets. And so the Old Testament is really a Jewish book. They were the keepers of his word. They were given, Paul says they were given his word and the prophets and so on. And so for some Gentile church organization of anybody to add to that book, I I just, I, I I'm I'm skeptical right away. And then, of course, for the New Testament, which the church is responsible for for. Um, uh, Tom's criteria that he mentioned that were the eyewitnesses to it and stuff. You have a lot of Gnostic gospels that didn't come along in the first century. They came along hundreds of years later. And for example, uh, I think one is called the Gospel of Thomas, if I remember. Well, it makes it sound like Thomas wrote that gospel. No, he didn't. It's it's a fraud. And so it does not meet the criteria uh, to have been included in the canon. And, And one last word, it's not like the church did a rubber stamp on what were the books of the Bible to be included in the New Testament. These books were already being used and circulated widely yep. by the church. It's when the counterfeits started to come along that the church said, hey, we better make a list, an official list, of what is, quote-unquote, in the canon, in the New Testament. And so it was to protect what was already being used and understood to be God's Word.
0: Okay. That's exactly uh- right. All right, just a couple minutes left. Jeff, let's have your movie review on the Jesus Revolution.
1: It was great. So I know the folks that put this together, I've done a couple projects with them, Kingdom Studio, um, and they did it distributed by Lionsgate. It's basically the story of what happened in the late 60s and early 70s at Calvary Church in Southern California. A pastor by the name of Chuck Smith started to invite all these hippies into his church. They were accepting Jesus. They had been looking in all the wrong places, drugs, rock and roll, sex, and so on, and yet it left them still empty. And so they started— accepting Christ in mass. And this movement took the country by storm, but it started in a little church in Southern California. And the story kind of follows uh, Greg Lowry, who uh, saw all this happening, came to Christ. He did his drugs and looked for the answers in the wrong places, and then did find Christ. And, of course, Greg Lowry ended up becoming the senior pastor of Harvest and uh, preaches to thousands, millions today. Um, And it follows him as well as Chuck Smith, who was the senior pastor of Calvary Church uh, at the time, kind of through this amazing time when some describe it as one of the the great revivals of America's history – Uh, In the late 60s and early 70s, and it was called by Time Magazine cover, uh, The Jesus Revolution. And it's a great movie. I just saw it last night.
0: Wow. Thanks for that movie review. You'd Mm -hmm. have a second career if you ever decided to uh, pursue (laughs) that. You did a nice job on that. Well, gentlemen, that's about all the time we have for guide talk. Uh, we're going to look forward to uh, next time together, having a little extended version. So we'll do a little bit more time next time we gather. But thank you for today. Thank you for your faithfulness and uh, all your great contributions.
1: Thank Always you, guys. You.
0: Yep. yep. All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a little break from guide talk, and then when we come back, Gary McIntosh is going to join me. He's written a book called The Solo Pastor. Understanding and overcoming the challenges of leading a church alone. That's going to be the subject of our next discussion with Gary McIntosh. And then Lori Wildenberg is going to follow. She's written a book called Messy Hope, Helping Your Child Overcome Anxiety, Depression, and Suicidal Ideation. That's what's ahead in the next hour. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support.